below his ribs was gone, and the Grand Maester's entrails dangled down from within his torn belly like so many burned black snakes. The blood drained from the Queen's cheeks when she beheld the bodies, but young Prince Aegon was the first to realize what they meant. Mother, flee! he shouted, but too late. Sir Alfred's men fell upon the Queen's protectors. An axe split Sir Harold Dark's head before his sword could clear its scabbard, and Sir Adrian Redfort was stabbed through the back with a spear. Only Sir Loras Lansdale moved quickly enough to strike a blow in the Queen's defense, cutting down the first two men who came at him before being slain himself. With him died the last of the Queen's guard. When Prince Aegon snatched up Sir Harold's sword, Sir Alfred knocked the blade aside contemptuously. The boy, the Queen, and her ladies were marched at spear point through the gates of Dragonstone to the castle ward. There, as Mushroom put it so memorably many years later, they found themselves face to face with a dead man and a dying dragon. Sunfire's scales still shone like beaten gold in the sunlight, but as he sprawled across the fused black valyrian stone of the yard, it was plain to see he was a broken thing. He, who had been the most magnificent dragon ever to fly the skies of Westeros. The wing, all but torn from his body by Melis, jutted at an awkward angle, whilst fresh scars along his back still smoked and bled when he moved. Sunfire was coiled in a ball when the queen and her party first beheld him. As he stirred and raised his head, huge wounds were visible along his neck, where another dragon had torn chunks from his flesh. On his belly, were places where scabs had replaced scales, and where his right eye should have been was only an empty hole crusted with black blood. One must ask, as Rhaenyra surely did, how this had come to pass. We now know much and more that the Queen did not. For that we must be grateful to Grand Maester Munken, for it was his true telling, based in large part on the account of Grand Maester Orwell, that revealed how Aegon II came to Dragonstone. It was Lord Larry Strong the Clubfoot who spirited the king and his children out of the city when the Queen's dragons first appeared in the skies above King's Landing, so as not to pass through any of the city gates where they might be seen and remembered. Lord Larry's led them out through some secret passage of Magor the Cruel, of which only he had knowledge. It was Lord Larry's who decreed the fugitives should part company as well, so that even if one were taken, the others might win free. Sir Rickard Thorne was commanded to deliver two-year-old Prince Maelor to Lord Hightower. Princess Jehera, a sweet and simple girl of six, was put in the charge of Sir Willis Fell, who swore to bring her safely to Storm's End. Neither knew where the other was bound, so neither could betray the other if captured. And only Laris himself knew that the king, stripped of his finery and clad in a salt-stained fisherman's cloak, had been concealed amongst a load of codfish on a fishing skiff, in the care of a bastard knight with kin on Dragonstone. Once she learned the king was gone, the clubfoot reasoned, Rhaenyra was sure to send men hunting after him. But a boat leaves no trail upon the waves, and few hunters would ever think to look for Aegon on his sister's own island, in the very shadow of her stronghold. All this Grand Maester Orwile had from Lord Strong's own lips, Munken tells us. And there Aegon might have remained, hidden yet harmless, dulling his pain with wine and hiding his burn scars beneath a heavy cloak, had Sunfire not made his way to Dragonstone. 
We may ask what drew him back to the Dragonmont, for many have. Was the wounded dragon with his half-heeled broken wing driven by some primal instinct to return to his birthplace, the smoking mountain where he had emerged from his egg? Or did he somehow sense the presence of King Aegon on the island, across long leagues and stormy seas, and fly there to rejoin his rider? Septon Eustace goes so far as to suggest that Sunfire sensed Aegon's desperate need. But who can presume to know the heart of a dragon? After Lord Wallace Mouton's ill-fated attack drove him from the field of ash and bone outside Rook's Rest, history loses sight of Sunfire for more than half a year. Certain tales told in the halls of the crabs and runes suggest the dragon might have taken refuge in the dark, piney woods and caves of Crackclaw Point for some of that time. Though his torn wing had mended enough for him to fly, it had healed at an ugly angle, and it remained weak. Sunfire could no longer soar, nor remain in the air for long, but must needs struggle to fly even short distances. The fool Mushroom, cruelly, says that whereas most dragons moved through the sky like eagles, Sunfire had become no more than a great golden fire-breathing chicken, hopping and fluttering from hill to hill. Yet this fire-breathing chicken crossed the waters of Blackwater Bay, for it was Sunfire that the sailors on the Nasaria had seen attacking Grey Ghost. So Robert Quince had blamed the cannibal, but Tom Tangletongue, a stammerer who heard more than he said, had plied the volunteers with ale, making note of all the times they mentioned the attacker's golden scales. The cannibal, as he knew well, was black as coal, and so the two Toms and their cousins, a half-truth, as only Sir Marston shared their blood, being the bastard son of Tom Tanglebeard's sister by the knight who took her maidenhead, set sail in their small boat to seek out Grey Ghost's killer. The burned king and the maimed dragon each found new purpose in the other, from a hidden lair on the desolate eastern slopes of the Dragonmont, Aegon ventured forth each day at dawn, taking to the sky again for the first time since Rook's rest, whilst the two Toms and their cousin Marston Waters returned to the other side of the island to seek out men willing to help them take the castle. Even on Dragonstone, long Queen Rhaenyra's seat and stronghold, they found many who misliked the Queen, for reasons both good and ill. Some grieved for brothers, sons, and fathers slain during the sowing or during the Battle of the Gullet. Some hoped for plunder or advancement, whilst others believed a son must come before a daughter, giving Aegon the better claim. The Queen had taken her best men with her to King's Landing. On its island, protected by the Sea Snake's ships and its high Valyrian walls, Dragonstone seemed unassailable, so the garrison her grace left to defend it was small, made up largely of men judged to be of little other use, greybeards and green boys, the halt and slow and crippled, men recovering from wounds, men of doubtful loyalty, men suspected of cowardice. Over them, Rhaenyra placed Sir Robert Quince, an able man, grown old and fat. Quince was a steadfast supporter of the Queen, all agree, but some of the men under him were less leal, harboring certain resentments and grudges for old wrongs, real or imagined. Prominent amongst them was Sir Alfred Broom. Broom proved more than willing to betray his queen in return for a promise of lordship, lands, and gold, 
should Aegon II regain the throne. His long service with the garrison allowed him to advise the king's men on Dragonstone's strengths and weaknesses, which guards could be bribed or won over, and which must needs be killed or imprisoned. When it came, the fall of Dragonstone took less than an hour. Men traduced by Broom opened a postern gate during the hour of ghosts, to allow Sir Marston Waters, Tom Tangletongue, and their men to slip into the castle unobserved. While one band seized the armory and another took Dragonstone's leal guardsmen and master-at-arms into custody, Sir Marston surprised Grand Maester Gerardus in his rookery, so no word of the attack might escape by Raven. Sir Alfred himself led the men who burst into the Castellan's chambers to surprise Sir Robert Quince. As Quince struggled to rise from his bed, a broom drove a spear into his huge, pale belly. Mushroom, who knew both men well, says Sir Alfred misliked and resented Sir Robert. This may well be believed, for the thrust was delivered with such force that the spear went out Sir Robert's back, through the feather bed and straw mattress, and into the floor beneath. Only in one respect did the plan go awry. As Tom Tangletongue and his ruffians smashed down the door of Lady Baylor's bedchamber to take her prisoner, the girl slipped out her window, scrambling across rooftops and down walls until she reached the yard. The king's men had taken care to send guards to secure the stable where the castle dragons had been kept, but Baylor had grown up in Dragonstone and knew ways in and out that they did not. By the time her pursuers caught up with her, she had already loosed Moondancer's chains and strapped her saddle onto her. So it came to pass that when King Aegon II flew sunfire over Dragonmont's smoking peak and made his descent, expecting to make a triumphant entrance into a castle safely in the hands of his own men, with the Queen's loyalists slain or captured, up to meet him rose Baylor Targaryen, Prince Daemon's daughter by the Lady Lena, as fearless as her father. Moondancer was a young dragon, pale green with horns and crest and wing bones of pearl. Aside from her great wings, she was no larger than a warhorse, and weighed less. She was very quick, however, and Sunfire, though much larger, still struggled with a malformed wing, and had taken fresh wounds from Grey Ghost. They met amidst the darkness that comes before the dawn, shadows in the sky lighting the night with their fires. Moondancer eluded Sunfire's flames, eluded his jaws, darted beneath his grasping claws, then came around and raked the larger dragon from above, opening a long, smoking wound down his back and tearing at his injured wing. Watchers below said that Sunfire lurched drunkenly in the air, fighting to stay aloft, whilst Moondancer turned and came back at him, spitting fire. Sunfire answered with a furnace blast of golden flame so bright it lit the yard below like a second sun, a blast that took Moondancer full in the eyes. Like as not, the young dragon was blinded in that instant, yet still she flew on, slamming into Sunfire in a tangle of wings and claws. As they fell, Moondancer struck at Sunfire's neck repeatedly, tearing out mouthfuls of flesh, whilst the elder dragon sank his claws into her underbelly. Robed in fire and smoke, Blind and bleeding, Moondancer beat her wings desperately as she tried to break away, but all her efforts did was slow their fall. The watchers in the yard scrambled for safety as the dragons slammed into the hard stone still fighting. 
On the ground, Moondancer's quickness proved of little use against Sunfire's size and weight. The green dragon soon lay still. The golden dragon screamed his victory and tried to rise again, only to collapse back to the ground with hot blood pouring from his wounds. King Aegon had leapt from the saddle when the dragons were still twenty feet from the ground, shattering both legs. Lady Baylor stayed with Moondancer all the way down. Burned and battered, the girl still found the strength to undo her saddle chains and crawl away as her dragon coiled in her final death throes. When Alfred Broom drew his sword to slay her, Marston Waters wrenched the blade from his hand. Tom Tangletongue carried her to the maester. Thus did King Aegon II win the ancestral seat of House Targaryen, but the price he paid for it was dire. Sunfire would never fly again. He remained in the yard where he had fallen, feeding on the carcass of Moondancer, and later on sheep slaughtered for him by the garrison. And Aegon II lived the rest of his life in great pain. Though to his honour, when Grand Maester Gerardus offered him milk of the poppy, he refused. I shall not walk that road again, he said, nor am I such a fool as to drink any potion you might prepare for me. You are my sister's creature. At the king's command, the chain that Princess Rhaenyra had torn from Grand Maester Orwile's neck and given to Gerardus was now used to hang him. It was not given the quick end of a hard fall and a broken neck, but rather a slow strangulation, kicking as he gasped for air. Thrice, when he was almost dead, Gerardus was let down and allowed to catch her breath, only to be hauled up again. After the third time, he was disemboweled and dangled before sunfire so the dragon might feast upon his legs and innards. But the king commanded that enough of the Grand Maester be saved, so he might greet my sweet sister on her return. Not long after, as the king lay in the stone drum's great hall, his broken legs bound and splinted, the first of Queen Rhaenyra's ravens arrived from Duskendale. When Aegon learned that his half-sister would be returning on the Violand, he commanded Sir Alfred Broom to prepare a suitable welcome for her homecoming. All of this is known to us now. None of this was known to the queen when she stepped ashore into her brother's traps. Septon Eustace, who had no love for the queen, tells us Rhaenyra laughed when she beheld the ruin of Sunfire the Golden. Whose work is this? he has her saying. We must thank him. Mushroom, who had much love for the queen, tells a different tale. In his account, Rhaenyra says, How has it come to this? Both accounts agree that the next words were spoken by the king. Sister, he called down from a balcony. Unable to walk or even stand, he had been carried there in a chair. The hip, shattered at Rook's rest, had left Aegon bent and twisted. His once handsome features had grown puffy from milk of the poppy, and burn scars covered half his body. Yet Rhaenyra knew him at once, and said, Dear brother, I had hoped that you were dead. After you, Aegon answered. You are the elder. I am pleased to know that you remember that, Rhaenyra answered. It would seem we are your prisoners, but do not think that you will hold us long. My leal lords will find me. If they search the seven hells, mayhaps, the king made answer, as his men tore Rhaenyra from her son's arms. 
Some accounts say it was Sir Alfred Broom who had hold of her arm. Others name the two Toms, Tanglebeard the father and Tangletongue the son. Sir Marston Waters stood witness as well, clad in a white cloak, for King Aegon had named him to his king's guard for his valour. Yet neither Waters nor any of the other knights and lords present in the yard spoke a word of protest as King Aegon II delivered his half-sister to his dragon. Sunfire, it is said, did not seem at first to take any interest in the offering until Broom pricked the queen's breast with his dagger. The smell of blood roused the dragon, who sniffed at her grace, then bathed her in a blast of flame, so suddenly that Sir Alfred's cloak caught fire as he leapt away. Rhaenyra Targaryen had time to raise her head toward the sky and shriek out one last curse upon her half-brother before Sunfire's jaws closed round her, tearing off her arm and shoulder. Septon Eustace tells us that the golden dragon devoured the queen in six bites, leaving only her left leg below the shin for the stranger. Elinda Massey, youngest and gentlest of Rhaenyra's ladies-in-waiting, supposedly gouged out her own eyes at the sight, whilst the queen's son Aegon the Younger watched in horror, unable to move. Rhaenyra Targaryen, the realm's delight and half-year queen, passed from this vale of tears upon the twenty-second day of the tenth moon of the one hundred and thirtieth year after Aegon's conquest. She was thirty-three years of age. Sir Alfred Broom argued for killing Prince Aegon as well, but King Aegon forbade it. Only ten, the boy might yet have value as a hostage, he declared. Though his half-sister was dead, she still had supporters in the field, who must needs be dealt with before his grace could hope to sit the Iron Throne again. So Prince Aegon was manacled at neck, wrist, and ankle, and led down to the dungeons under Dragonstone. The late queen's ladies-in-waiting, being of noble birth, were given cells in Sea Dragon Tower, there to await ransom. The time for hiding is done, King Aegon II declared. Let the ravens fly that the realm may know the pretender is dead and their true king is coming home to reclaim his father's throne. The Dying of the Dragons The Short, Sad Reign of Aegon II The time for hiding is done. King Aegon II declared on Dragonstone after Sunfire had feasted on his sister. Let the ravens fly that the realm may know the pretender is dead and their true king is coming home to reclaim his father's throne. Yet even true kings may find some things more easily proclaimed than accomplished. The moon would wax and wane and wax again before Aegon II took his leave of Dragonstone. Between him and King's Landing lay the Isle of Driftmark, the whole breadth of Blackwater Bay, and scores of prowling Valerian warships. With the sea snaker guest of Tristane Truefire in King's Landing and Sir Adam dead at Tumbleton, command of the Valerian fleets now rested with Adam's brother Alan, the younger son of Mouse, the shipwright's daughter, a boy of fifteen. But would he be friend or foe? His brother had died fighting for the queen, but that same queen had made their lord a captive and was herself dead. Ravens were dispatched to Driftmark, offering House Valerian pardon for all its past offences, 
if Alan of Hull would present himself on Dragonstone and swear allegiance. But until and unless an answer was received, it would be folly for Aegon II to try to cross the bay by ship and risk capture. Nor did his grace wish to sail to King's Landing. In the days following his half-sister's death, the king still clung to the hope that Sunfire might recover enough strength to fly again. Instead, the dragon only seemed to weaken further, and soon the wounds in his neck began to stink. Even the smoke he exhaled had a foul smell to it, and toward the end, he would no longer eat. On the ninth day of the twelfth moon of 130 AC, the magnificent golden dragon that had been King Aegon's glory died in the outer yard of Dragonstone where he had fallen. His grace wept and gave orders that his cousin Lady Baylor be brought up from the dungeons and put to death. Only when her head was on the block did he repent, when his maester reminded him that the girl's mother had been a Valerian, the sea snake's own daughter. Another raven took wing for Driftmark, this time with a threat. Unless Alan of Hull presented himself within a fortnight to do homage to his rightful liege, his cousin, the Lady Baylor, would lose her head. On the western shores of Blackwater Bay, meanwhile, the moon of the three kings came to a sudden end when an army appeared outside the walls of King's Landing. For more than half a year the city had lived in fear of Ormond Hightower's advancing host, but when the assault came, it came not from Old Town by way of Bitterbridge and Tumbleton, but up the King's Road from Storm's End. Boros Baratheon, on hearing of the Queen's death, had left his newly pregnant wife and four daughters to strike north through the King's Wood with six hundred knights and four thousand foot. When the Baratheon vanguard was seen across the Blackwater Rush, the shepherd commanded his followers to rush the river to keep Lord Boros from coming ashore. But only hundreds now came to listen to this beggar who'd once preached to tens of thousands, and few obeyed. Atop, Aegon's high hill, the squire now calling himself King Tristane Truefire, stood on the battlements with Laris Strong and Sir Perkin the Flea, gazing at the swelling ranks of Stormlanders. We do not have the strength to oppose such a host, sire, Lord Laris told the boy, but perhaps words can succeed where swords must fail. Send me to parley with them. And so the clubfoot was dispatched across the river under a flag of truce, accompanied by Grand Maester Orwile and the Dowager Queen Alicent. The Lord of Storm's End received them in a pavilion on the edge of the Kingswood, as his men felled trees to build rafts for the river crossing. There Queen Alicent received the glad news that her granddaughter Jehera, the only surviving child of her son Aegon and daughter Helena, had been delivered safely to Storm's End by Sir Willis Fell of the Kingsguard. The Dowager Queen wept tears of joy. Betrayals and betrothals followed, until an accord was reached between Lord Boros, Lord Laris, and Queen Alicent, with Grand Maester Orwile as witness. The clubfoot promised that Sir Perkin and his gutter knights would join the Stormlanders in restoring King Aegon II to the Iron Throne, on the condition that all of them, save the pretender Tristane, would be pardoned for any and all offences, including high treason, rebellion, robbery, murder, and rape. Queen Alicent agreed that her son King Aegon would make Lady Cassandra, Lord Boris's eldest daughter, his new queen. Lady Floris, another of his lordship's daughters, 
was to be betrothed to Laris Strong. The problem posed by the Valerian fleet was discussed at some length. We must bring the sea snake into this, Lord Baratheon is reported to have said. Perhaps the old man would like a new young wife. I have two daughters not yet spoken for. He is traitor thrice over, Queen Alison said. Rhaenyra could never have taken King's Landing but for him. His grace, my son, will not have forgotten. I want him dead. He will die soon enough in any case, replied Lord Laris Strong. Let us make our peace with him now, and make what use of him we can. Once all is safely settled, if we have no further need of House Valerian, we can always lend the stranger a hand. And so it was agreed, most shamefully. The envoys returned to King's Landing, and the Stormlanders soon followed, crossing the Blackwater Rush without incident. Lord Boros found the city walls unmanned, the gates undefended, the streets and squares empty, save for corpses. As he climbed Aegon's high hill with his banner-bearer and household shields, he saw the ragged banners of the Squire Tristain hauled down from the gatehouse battlements, and the golden dragon banner of King Aegon II raised in their stead. Queen Alicent herself emerged from the Red Keep to bid him welcome, with Sir Perkin the Flea beside her. Where is the pretender? Lord Boris asked, as he dismounted in the outer ward. Taken and in chains, replied Sir Perkin. Seasoned by countless border clashes with the Dornish and his recent victorious campaign against the new vulture king, Lord Boris Baratheon wasted no time in restoring order to King's Landing. After a night of quiet celebration in the Red Keep, he rode forth the next day against Visenya's Hill and the Cunny King, Gaiman Palehair. Columns of armoured knights climbed the hill from three directions, riding down the street scum, sellswords and drunkards who had gathered round the little king and putting them to rout. The young monarch, who had celebrated his fifth name day only two days previous, was carried back to the Red Keep, slung over the back of a horse, chained and weeping. His mother walked behind him, clutching the hand of the Dornish woman, Sylvena Sand, and leading a long column of whores, which women cut purses, sneaks, and sots, the surviving remnants of the pale hair caught. The shepherd's turn came the next night. Forewarned by the fate of the whores and their little king, the prophet had called upon his barefoot army to assemble around the dragon pit and defend the hill of Rhaenys with blood and iron. But the shepherd's star had fallen. Fewer than three hundred came in answer to his call, and many of those fled when the assault began. Lord Boros led his knights up the hill from the west, whilst Sir Perkin and his gutter knights climbed the steeper southern slope from Flea Bottom. Crashing through the thin ranks of defenders into the ruins of the dragon pit, they found the prophet amongst the dragon heads, now far gone in rot, surrounded by a ring of torches, still preaching of doom and devastation. When he spied Lord Boros on his warhorse, the shepherd pointed his stump at him and cursed him. We shall meet in hell before this year is done, the begging brother proclaimed. Like Game and Palehair, he was taken alive and carried back to the Red Keep, bound in chains. Thus did peace return to King's Landing, after a fashion. In the name of her son, our true king Aegon, second of his name, Queen Alicent proclaimed a curfew, making it unlawful to be on the city streets after dark. 
The City Watch was reformed under the command of Sir Perkin the Flea to enforce the curfew, whilst Lord Boros and his Stormlanders manned the city's gates and battlements. Pulled down from their three hills, the three false kings languished in the dungeons, awaiting the true king's return. That return hinged upon the Valerians of Driftmark, however. Behind the walls of the Red Keep, the Dowager Queen Alicent and Lord Larry Strong had offered the Sea Snake his freedom, a full pardon for his treasons, and a place on the king's small council if he would bend his knee to Aegon II as his king and deliver them the swords and sails of Driftmark. The old man had proved to be surprisingly intractable, however. My knees are old and stiff, and do not bend easily, Lord Corliss responded, before setting forth terms of his own. He wanted pardons not only for himself, but for all those who had fought for Queen Rhaenyra, and demanded further that Aegon the Younger be given Princess Jehera's hand in marriage, so the two of them might jointly be proclaimed King Aegon's heirs. The realm has been split asunder, he said. We must needs join it back together. Lord Baratheon's daughters did not interest him, but he wanted Lady Bela freed at once. Queen Alicent was outraged by Lord Valerian's arrogance, Munken tells us, especially his demand that Queen Rhaenyra's Aegon be named as heir to her own Aegon. She had suffered the loss of two of her three sons and her only daughter during the dance, and could not bear the thought that any of her rival's sons should live. Angrily, her grace reminded Lord Corlys that she had twice proposed terms of peace to Rhaenyra, only to have her overtures rejected with scorn. It fell to Lord Larys the clubfoot to pour oil on the troubled waters, calming the queen with a quiet reminder of all they had discussed in Lord Baratheon's tent, and persuading her to consent to the sea snake's proposals. The next day, Lord Corlys Valerian, the sea snake, knelt before Queen Alicent as she sat upon the lower steps of the Iron Throne, as proxy for her son, and there pledged the king his loyalty and that of his house. Before the eyes of gods and men, the Queen Dowager granted him and his a royal pardon, and restored him to his old place on the small council as admiral and master of ships. Ravens went forth to Driftmark and Dragonstone to announce the accord, and not a day too soon, for they found young Alan Valerian gathering his ships for an attack on Dragonstone, and King Aegon II preparing once again to behead his cousin Bela. In the waning days of 130 AC, King Aegon II returned at last to King's Landing, accompanied by Sir Marston Waters, Sir Alfred Broom, the two Toms, and Lady Bela Targaryen, still in chains for fear she might attack the king if freed. Escorted by twelve Valerian war galleys, they sailed upon a battered old trading cog named Mouse, owned and captained by Marilda of Hull. If Mushroom may be trusted, the choice of vessel was deliberate. Lord Allen might have shipped the king home aboard Lord Athan's glory, or Morning Tide, or even Spice Town Girl, but he wanted him seen to be creeping into the city on a mouse, the dwarf said. Lord Allen was an insolent boy, and did not love his king. The king's return was far from triumphant. Still unable to walk, his grace was brought through the river gate in a closed litter, and carried up Aegon's high hill to the Red Keep through a silent city, 
past deserted streets, abandoned homes and looted shops. The steep, narrow steps of the Iron Throne proved impossible for him as well. Henceforth, the restored king must needs hold court from a carved, cushioned wooden seat at the base of the true throne, with a blanket across his twisted, shattered legs. Though in great pain, the king did not retreat to his bedchamber again, nor avail himself of dream wine or milk of the poppy, but immediately set to pronouncing judgment upon the three dayfly kings who had ruled King's Landing during the Moon of Madness. The squire was the first to face his wrath and was sentenced to die for high treason. A brave boy, Tristane was at first defiant when dragged before the Iron Throne until he saw Sir Perkin the Flea standing with the king. That took the heart from him, says Mushroom, but even then the youth did not plead his innocence nor beg for mercy, but asked only that he might be made a knight before he died. This boon King Aegon granted, whereupon Sir Marston Waters dubbed the lad, his fellow bastard, Sir Tristan Fire. True Fire, the name the boy had bestowed upon himself, being deemed presumptuous. And Sir Alfred Broom struck his head off with Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror. The fate of the cunny king, Gaiman Palehair, was kinder. Having just turned five, the boy was spared on account of his youth and made a ward of the crown. His mother, Essie, who had presumed to style herself Lady Esselin during her son's brief reign, confessed under torture that Gaiman's father was not the king, as she had previously claimed, but rather a silver-haired oarsman off a trading galley from Lys. Being low-born and unworthy of the sword, Essie and the Dornish whore Sylvana Sand were hanged from the battlements of the Red Keep, together with twenty-seven other members of King Gaiman's court, an ill-favoured assortment of thieves, drunkards, mummers, beggars, whores, and panders. Lastly, King Aegon II turned his attention to the shepherd. When brought before the Iron Throne for judgment, the prophet refused to repent his crimes or admit to treason, but thrust the stump of his missing hand at the king and told his grace, We shall meet in hell before this year is done. The same words he had spoken to Boris Baratheon upon his capture. For that insolence, Aegon had the shepherd's tongue torn out with hot pincers, then condemned him and his treasonous followers to death by fire. On the last day of the year, 241 barefoot lambs the shepherd's most fervid and devoted followers were covered with pitch and chained to poles along the broad, cobbled thoroughfare that ran eastward from Cobbler's Square up to the Dragon Pit. As the city's septs rang their bells to signal the end of the old year and the coming of the new, King Aegon II proceeded along the street, thereafter known as Shepherd's Way rather than Hill Street as before, in his litter, whilst his knights rode to either side setting their torches to the captive lambs to light his way. Thus did his grace continue up the hill to the very top, where the shepherd himself was bound amongst the heads of the five dragons. Supported by two of his king's guard, King Aegon rose from his cushions, tottered to the pole where the prophet had been chained, and set him aflame with his own hand. Rhaenyra the Pretender was gone, her dragons dead, the mama kings all fallen, and yet the realm knew not peace, Septon Eustace wrote soon after. With his half-sister slain and her only surviving son a captive at his own court, King Aegon II might reasonably have expected the remaining opposition to his rule to melt away. 
and mayhaps it might have done so, if his grace had heeded Lord Valerian's counsel and issued a general pardon for all those lords and knights who had espoused the Queen's cause. Alas, the King was not of a forgiving mind. Urged on by his mother, the Queen Dowager Alicent, Aegon II was determined to exact vengeance upon those who had betrayed and deposed him. He started with the Crownlands, sending forth his own men and the Stormlanders of Boros Baratheon against Rosby, Stokeworth and Duskendale, and the surrounding keeps and villages. Though the lords thus accosted, through their stewards and castellans, were quick to lower Rhaenyra's quartered banner and raise Aegon's golden dragon in its stead, each in turn was brought in chains to King's Landing and forced to do obeisance before the king. Nor were they freed until they had agreed to pay a heavy ransom and provide the crown with suitable hostages. This campaign proved a grave mistake, for it only served to harden the hearts of the late queen's men against the king. A report soon reached King's Landing of warriors gathering in great numbers at Winterfell, Barrowton, and White Harbour. In the Riverlands, the aged and bedridden Lord Grover Tully had finally died, of apoplexy from having his house fight against the rightful king at Second Tumbleton, Mushroom says and his grandson, Elmo, now at last the Lord of Riverrun, had called the Lords of the Trident to war once more, lest he suffer the same fate as Lords Rosby, Stokeworth, and Darklin. To him gathered Benjicott Blackwood of Raventree, already a seasoned warrior at three and ten, his fierce young aunt, Black Alley, with three hundred bows, Lady Sabbath of Frey, the merciless and grasping Lady of the Twins, Lord Hugo Vance of Wayfarer's Rest, Lord Jorah Malister of Seaguard, Lord Roland Darry of Darry, I and even Humphrey Bracken, Lord of Stonehenge, whose house had hitherto supported King Aegon's cause. Even more grave were the tidings from the Vale, where Lady Jane Arran had assembled fifteen hundred knights and eight thousand men-at-arms, and sent envoys to the Bravosi to arrange for ships to bring them down upon King's Landing. With them would come a dragon. Lady Rayner of House Targaryen, brave Baylor's twin, had brought a dragon's egg with her to the Vale, an egg that had proved fertile, bringing forth a pale pink hatchling with black horns and crest. Rainer named her Morning. Though years would need to pass before Morning grew large enough to be ridden to war, the news of her birth nonetheless was of great concern to the Green Council. If the rebels could flaunt a dragon, and the loyalists could not, Queen Alicent pointed out, small folk might see their foes as more legitimate. I need a dragon, Aegon II said when he was told. Aside from Lady Rayner's hatchling, only three living dragons remained in all of Westeros. Sheepstealer had vanished with the girl Nettles, but it was thought to be somewhere in Crackclaw Point or the Mountains of the Moon. The cannibal still haunted the eastern slopes of the Dragonmont. Silverwing, at last report, had departed the desolation at Tumbleton for the Reach, and was said to have made her lair on a small, stony isle in the middle of Red Lake. Queen Alisan's silvery she-dragon had accepted a second rider, Boros Baratheon pointed out. Why not a third? Claim the dragon and your crown is secure. But Aegon II was as yet unable to walk or stand, much less mount and ride a dragon. Nor was his grace strong enough for a long journey across the realm to Red Lake, through regions infested with traitors, rebels, and broken men. That answer was no answer, plainly. Not Silverwing, his grace declared, 
I will have a new sunfire, prouder and fiercer than the last. So ravens were sent to Dragonstone, where the eggs of the Targaryen dragons, some so old they had turned to stone, were kept under guard in undervaults and cellars. The maester there chose seven, in honour of the gods, that he deemed most promising, and sent them to King's Landing. King Aegon kept them in his own chambers, but none yielded a dragon. Mushroom tells us his grace sat on a large purple and gold egg for a day and a night, hoping to hatch it. But it had as well been a purple and gold turd for all the good it did. Grand Maester Orwile, free of the dungeons and once more adorned with his chain of office, gives us a detailed look inside the restored Green Council during this troubled time, when fear and suspicion held sway even within the Red Keep. At the very time when unity was most desperately required, the lords around King Aegon II found themselves deeply divided and unable to agree on how best to deal with the gathering storm. The sea snake favoured reconciliation, pardon, and peace. Boros Baratheon scorned that course as weakness. He would defeat these traitors in the field, he declared to king and council. All he required was men. Castley Rock and Old Town should be commanded to raise fresh armies at once. Sir Tyland Lannister, the blind master of coin, proposed to sail to Lys or Tyrosh and engage one or more sellsort companies. Aegon II did not lack for coin, as Sir Tyland had placed three quarters of the crown's wealth safely in the hands of Castley Rock, Old Town, and the Iron Bank of Bravos, before Queen Rhaenyra seized the city and the treasury. Lord Valerian saw such efforts as futile. We do not have the time. Children sit in the seats of power at Old Town and Casterly Rock. We will find no more help there. The best free companies are bound by contract to lease Mir or Tyrosh. Even if Sir Tyland could prize them loose, he could not bring them here in time. My ships can keep the errands from our door, but who will stop the Northmen and the Lords of the Trident? They are already on the march. We must make terms. His grace should absolve them of all their crimes and treasons, proclaim Rhaenyra's Aegon his heir, and marry him at once to Princess Jehera. It is the only way. The old man's words fell upon deaf ears, however. Queen Alicent had reluctantly agreed to the betrothal of her granddaughter to Rhaenyra's son, but she had done so without the king's consent. Aegon II had other ideas. He wished to marry Cassandra Baratheon at once, for... She will give me strong sons worthy of the Iron Throne. Nor would he allow Prince Aegon to wed his daughter, and perhaps sire sons who might muddy the succession. He can take the black and spend his days at the war, his grace decreed, or else give up his manhood and serve me as a eunuch. The choice is his, but he shall have no children. My sister's line must end. Even that was thought to be too gentle a course by Sir Tyland Lannister who argued for the immediate execution of Prince Aegon the Younger. The boy will remain a threat so long as he draws breath, Lannister declared. Remove his head, and these traitors will be left with neither queen, nor king, nor prince. The sooner he is dead, the sooner this rebellion will end. His words, and those of the king, horrified Lord Valerian. The aged sea snake, thunderous in his wrath, accused king and council of being fools, liars and oath-breakers, and stormed from the chamber. Boros Baratheon then offered to bring the king the old man's head, and Aegon II was on the point of giving consent, 
when Lord Larry Strong spoke up, reminding them that young Alan Valerian, the sea snake's heir, remained beyond their reach on Driftmark. Kill the old snake, and we lose the young one, the clubfoot said, and all those fine swift ships of theirs as well. Instead, he said, they must move at once to make amends with Lord Corliss so as to keep House Valerian on their side. Give him his betrothal, your grace, he urged the king. A betrothal is not a wedding. Name young Aegon your heir. A prince is not a king. Look back at the history and count how many heirs never lived to sit the throne. Deal with Driftmark in due course when your foes are vanquished and your tide is at the full. That day is not yet come. We must bide our time and speak to him gently. Or so his words have come down to us, from Orwile by way of Monkton. Neither Septon Eustace nor the fool Mushroom was present at the council. Yet Mushroom speaks of it all the same, saying, Was there ever a man as devious as the clubfoot? Oh, he would have made a splendid fool, that one. The words dripped from his lips like honey from a comb, and never did poison taste so sweet. The enigma that is Larry's strong the clubfoot has vexed students of history for generations, and is not one we can hope to unravel here. Where did his true loyalty lie? What was he about? He wove his way all through the dance of the dragons, on this side and that side, vanishing and reappearing, yet somehow always surviving. How much of what he said and did was ruse? How much was real? Was he just a man who sailed with the prevailing wind, or did he know where he was bound when he set out? So may we ask, but none will answer. The last strong keeps his secrets. We do know that he was sly, secretive, yet plausible and pleasant when need be. His words swayed the king and council in their course. When Queen Alicent demurred, wondering aloud how Lord Corlys could possibly be won back after all that had been said that day, Lord Strong replied, That task you may leave to me, your grace. His lordship will listen to me, I dare say. And so he did. For though none knew it at the time, the clubfoot went directly to Sea Snake when the council was dismissed, and told him of the king's intent to grant him all he had requested, and murder him later, when the war was done. And when the old man would have stormed out sword in hand to exact a bloody vengeance, Lord Laris soothed him with soft words and smiles. There is a better way, he said, counselling patience. And thus did he spin his webs of deceit and betrayal, setting each against the other. Whilst plots and counterplots swirled around him, and enemies closed in from every side, Aegon II remained oblivious. The king was not a well man. The burns he'd suffered at Rook's rest had left scars that covered half his body. Mushroom says they had rendered him impotent as well. Nor could he walk. His leap from Sunfire's back at Dragonstone had broken his right leg in two places and shattered the bones in his left. The right had healed well, Grand Maester Orwile records. Not so the left. The muscles of that leg had atrophied, the knees stiffening, the flesh melting away until only a withered stick remained so twisted that Orwile thought his grace might do better were it cut away entirely. The king would not hear of it, however. Instead, he was carried hither and yon by litter. Only toward the end did he regain the strength to walk with the aid of a crutch, dragging his bad leg behind him. In constant pain during the last half-year of his life, 
Aegon seemed to take pleasure only in contemplating his forthcoming marriage. Even the capers of his fools never made him laugh, we are told by Mushroom, the foremost of those fools, though his grace did smile from time to time at my sallies and liked to keep me by his side to lighten his melancholy and help him dress. Though no longer himself capable of sexual congress due to his burns, according to the dwarf, Aegon still felt carnal urges, and would often watch from behind a curtain as one of his favourites coupled with a serving girl or lady of the court. Most often Tom Tangletongue performed this task for him, we are told. At other times, certain knights of the household took the place of dishonour, and thrice Mushroom himself was pressed into service. After these sessions, the fool says, the king would weep for shame and summon Septon Eustace to grant him absolution. Eustace says nothing of this in his own account of Aegon's final days. During this time, King Aegon II also commanded that the dragon pit be restored and rebuilt, commissioned two huge statues of his brothers, Aemond and Daron. He decreed they should be larger than the Titan of Bravos and covered in gold leaf, and held a public burning of all the decrees and proclamations issued by the Dayfly Kings, Tristan Truefire, and Gaiman Palehair. Meanwhile, his enemies were on the march. Down the neck came Cregan Stark, Lord of Winterfell, with a great host at his back. Septon Eustace speaks of twenty thousand howling savages in shaggy pelts, though Munken lowers that to eight thousand in his true telling. Even as the Maiden of the Vale sent off her own army from Gulltown, Ten thousand men under the command of Lord Leowin Corbray and his son, Sir Corwin, who bore the famous Valyrian blade called Lady Forlorn. The most immediate threat, however, was that posed by the men of the Trident. Near six thousand of them had gathered at Riverrun when Elmo Tully called his banners. Sadly, Lord Elmo himself had expired on the march, after drinking some bad water, after only nine and forty days as Lord of Riverrun but the lordship had passed to his eldest son, Sir Kermit Tully, a wild and headstrong youth eager to prove himself as a warrior. There were six days' march from King's Landing, moving down the King's Road, when Lord Boros Baratheon led his Stormlanders forth to meet them, his strength bolstered by levies from Stokeworth, Rosby, Hayford, and Duskendale, along with two thousand men and boys from the stews of Fleabottom, hastily armed with spears and iron pot helms. The two armies came together two days from the city at a place where the king's road passed between a wood and a low hill. It had been raining heavily for days, and the grass was wet, the ground soft and muddy. Lord Boris was confident of victory, for his scouts had told him that the rivermen were led by boys and women. It was nigh unto dusk when he spied the enemy, yet he ordered an immediate attack, though the road ahead was a solid wall of shields, and the hill to its right bristled with archers. Lord Boris led the charge himself, forming his knights into a wedge, and thundered down the road at the heart of the foe, where the silver trout of River Run floated on its blue and red banner beside the quartered arms of the dead queen. His foot advanced behind them, beneath King Aegon's golden dragon. The citadel names the clash that followed the Battle of the King's Road. The men who fought it named it the Muddy Mess. By any name, the last battle of the Dance of the Dragons would prove to be a one-sided affair. The longbows on the hill shot the horses out from under Lord Boris's knights as they charged, bringing down so many that less than half his riders ever reached the shield wall. Those that did found their ranks disordered, their wedge broken, their horses slipping and struggling in the soft mud. 
Though the Stormlanders wreaked great havoc with lance and sword and long axe, the river lords held firm, as new men stepped up to fill the place of those who fell. When Lord Baratheon's foot came crashing into the fray, the shield wall swayed and staggered back, and seemed as if it might break, until the wood to the left of the road erupted with shouts and screams, and hundreds more rivermen burst from the trees led by that mad boy Benjicott Blackwood, who would this day earn the name Bloody Ben, by which he would be known for the rest of his long life. Lord Boros himself was still a horse in the middle of the carnage. When he saw the battle slipping away, his lordship bade his squire sound his war horn, signalling his reserve to advance. Upon hearing the horn, however, the men of Rosby, Stokeworth, and Hayford let fall the king's golden dragons and remained unmoving. The rabble from King's Landing scattered like geese, and the knights of Duskendale went over to the foe, attacking the Stormlanders in the rear. Battle turned to rout in half a heartbeat, as King Aegon's last army shattered. Boros Baratheon perished fighting. Unhorsed when his destrier was felled by arrows from Black Alley and her bowmen, he battled on afoot, cutting down countless men-at-arms, a dozen knights, and the lords Malister and Darry. By the time Kermit Tully came upon him, Lord Boros was dead upon his feet, bare-headed, he had ripped off his dented helm, bleeding from a score of wounds, scarce able to stand. Yield, sir, called the Lord of Riveran to the Lord of Storm's End. The day is ours. Lord Baratheon answered with a curse, saying, I'd sooner dance in hell than wear your chains. Then he charged straight into the spiked iron ball at the end of Lord Kermit's morning star, which took him full in the face in a grisly spray of blood and bone and brain. The Lord of Storm's End died in the mud along the King's Road, his sword still in his hand. As the gods would have it, seven days later at Storm's End, his lady wife gave birth to the son and heir that Lord Boros had so long desired. His lordship had left instructions that the babe was to be named Aegon, if a boy, in honour of the king. But upon learning of her lord's death in battle, Lady Baratheon named the child Oliver, after her own father. When the ravens brought word of the battle back to the Red Keep, the Green Council hurriedly convened. All of the sea snake's warnings had proved true. Casterly Rock, High Garden, and Old Town had been slow to reply to the king's demand for more armies. When they did, they offered excuses and prevarications in the place of promises. The Lannisters were embroiled in their war against the Red Kraken. The High Towers had lost too many men and had no capable commanders. Little Lord Tyrell's mother wrote to say that she had reason to doubt the loyalty of her son's bannermen, and, being a mere woman, I am not myself fit to lead a host to war. Sir Tyland Lannister, Sir Marston Waters, and Sir Julian Wormwood had been dispatched across the narrow sea to seek after sellswords in Pentos, Tyrosh, and Mir, but none had yet returned. King Aegon II would soon stand naked before his enemies, all of the king's men knew. Bloody Ben Blackwood, Kermit Tully, Sabbath Frey, and their brothers in victory were preparing to resume their advance upon the city, and only a few days behind them came Lord Cregan Stark and his northmen. The Bravosi fleet, Carrying the Aran host had departed Gulltown and was sailing toward the gullet, where only young Alan Valerian stood in its way, and the loyalty of Driftmark could not be relied upon. Your grace, the sea snake said, when the rump of the once proud Green Council had assembled, 
You must surrender. The city cannot endure another sack. Save your people and save yourself. If you abdicate in favor of Prince Aegon, he will allow you to take the black and live out your life with honor on the wall. Will he? King Aegon said. Munken tells us he sounded hopeful. His mother entertained no such hope. You fed his mother to your dragon, she reminded her son. The boy saw it all. The king turned to her desperately. What would you have me do? You have hostages, the queen dowager replied. Cut off one of the boy's ears and send it to Lord Tully. Warn them he will lose another part for every mile they advance. Yes, Aegon II said. Good, it shall be done. He summoned Sir Alfred Broom, who had served him so well on Dragonstone. Go and see to it, sir. As the knight took his leave, the king turned to Corlys Valerian. Tell your bastard to fight bravely, my lord. If he fails me, if any of these bravosi pass the gullet, your precious Lady Bela shall lose some parts as well. The sea snake did not plead or curse or threaten. He nodded stiffly, rose, and took his leave. Mushroom says he exchanged a look with the clubfoot as he went, but Mushroom was not present, and it seems most unlikely that a man as seasoned as Corlys Valerian would act so clumsily at such a moment. For Aegon's day was done, though he had yet to grasp it. The turncloaks in his midst had put their plans in motion the moment they learned of Lord Baratheon's defeat upon the King's Road. As Sir Alfred Broom crossed the drawbridge to Magor's Holdfast, where Prince Aegon was being held, he found Sir Perkin the Flea and six of his gutter knights barring his way. Move aside, in the king's name, Broom demanded. We have a new king now, answered Sir Perkin. He put a hand upon Sir Alfred's shoulder, then shoved him hard, sending him staggering off the drawbridge onto the iron spikes below, where he writhed and twisted for two days as he died. In that same hour, Lady Bela Targaryen was being spirited away to safety by agents of Lord Larys the Clubfoot. Tom Tangleton was surprised in the castle yards as he was leaving the stables and beheaded forthwith. He died as he had lived, stammering, says Mushroom. His father, Tom Tanglebeard, was absent from the castle, but they found him in a tavern on Eel Alley. When he protested that he was just a simple fisherman come to have an ale, his captors drowned him in a cask of same. All this was done so neatly, swiftly, and quietly that the people of King's Landing had little or no inkling of what was happening behind the walls of the Red Keep. Even within the castle itself no alarm went up. Those who had been marked down for death were killed, whilst the rest of the court went about their business, undisturbed and unawares. Septon Eustace tells us that twenty-four men were killed, whilst Munken's true telling says twenty-one. Mushroom claims to have witnessed the murder of the king's food taster, a grossly fat man named Omet, and asserts that he was forced to hide in a barrel of flour to escape the same fate, emerging the next night, flowered from head to heels, so white the first serving girl to see me took me for Mushroom's ghost. This smells of story. Why would the plotters wish to kill a fool? Queen Alicent was arrested on the serpentine steps as she made her way back to her chambers. Her captors wore the seahorse of House Valerian upon their doublets, and though they slew the two men guarding her, they did no harm to the dowager queen herself, nor to her ladies. The queen in chains was chained again, 
and taken to the dungeons, there to await the pleasure of the new king. By then, the last of her sons was already dead. After the council meeting, King Aegon II was carried down to the yard by two strong squires. There he found his litter waiting, as was customary. His withered leg made steps too difficult for him, even with a crutch. Sir Giles Belgrave, the King's Guard knight commanding his escort, testified afterward that his grace seemed unusually fatigued as he was helped into the litter, his face grey and ashen, sagging. Yet instead of asking to be carried back to his chambers, he told Sir Giles to take him to the castle Sept. Perhaps he sensed his end was near, Septon Eustace wrote, and wished to pray for forgiveness for his sins. A cold wind was blowing. As the litter set off, the king closed the curtains against the chill. Inside, as always, was a flagon of sweet arbor red, Aegon's favorite wine. The king availed himself of a small cup as the litter crossed the yard. Sir Giles and the litter-bearers had no notion aught was amiss until they reached the sept and the curtains did not open. We are here, your grace, the knight said. No answer came, but only silence. When a second query and a third produced the same, Sir Giles Belgrave threw back the curtains and found the king dead upon his cushions. There was blood upon his lips, the knight said. Elsewise he might have been sleeping. Maesters and common men alike still debate which poison was used, and who might have put it in the king's wine. Some argue that only Sir Giles himself could have done so, but it would be unthinkable for a knight of the king's guard to take the life of the king he had sworn to protect. Omet, the king's food taster, whose murder Mushroom claims to have seen, seems a more likely candidate. Yet whilst the hand that poisoned the Arbor Red will never be known, we can have no doubt that it was done at the behest of Laris Strong. Thus perished Aegon of House Targaryen, the second of his name, firstborn son of King Viserys I Targaryen and Queen Alicent of House Hightar, whose reign proved as brief as it was bitter. He'd lived four and twenty years and reigned for two. When the vanguard of Lord Tully's host appeared before the walls of King's Landing two days later, Corlys Valerian rode out to greet them with Prince Aegon, somber at his side. The king is dead, the sea snake announced gravely. Long live the king! And across Blackwater Bay in the gullet, Lord Leowin Corbray stood at the prow of a bravosi cog and watched a line of Valerian warships haul down the golden dragon of the second Aegon and raise in its place the red dragon of the first, the banner that all the Targaryen kings had flown until the dance began. The war was over, though the peace that followed would soon prove to be far from peaceful. On the seventh day of the seventh moon of the 131st year after Aegon's conquest, a date deemed sacred to the gods, the High Septon of Old Town pronounced the marriage vows as Prince Aegon the Younger eldest son of Queen Rhaenyra by her uncle Prince Daemon, wed Princess Jehera, the daughter of Queen Helena by her brother King Aegon II, thereby uniting the two rival branches of House Targaryen and ending two years of treachery and carnage. The Dance of the Dragons was done, and the melancholy reign of King Aegon III Targaryen had begun.
Aftermath The Hour of the Wolf The small folk of the Seven Kingdoms speak of King Aegon III Targaryen as Aegon the Unlucky, Aegon the Unhappy, and, most often, the Dragonbane, when they remember him at all. All these names are apt. Grand Maester Munken, who served him for a good part of his reign, calls him the Broken King, which fits him even better. Of all the men ever to sit the Iron Throne, he remains perhaps the most enigmatic, a shadowy monarch who said little and did less, and lived a life steeped in grief and melancholy. The fourth-born son of Rhaenyra Targaryen, and her eldest by her uncle and second husband, Prince Daemon Targaryen, Aegon came to the Iron Throne in 131 AC, and reigned for twenty-six years, until his death of consumption in 157 AC. He took two wives and fathered five children, two sons and three daughters, yet seemed to find little joy in either marriage or fatherhood. In truth, he was a singularly joyless man. He did not hunt or hawk, rode only for travel, drank no wine, and was so disinterested in food that he often had to be reminded to eat. Though he permitted tourneys, he took no part in them, either as competitor or spectator. As a man grown, he dressed simply, most often black, and was known to wear a hair shirt under the velvets and satins required of a king. That was many years later, however, after Aegon III had come of age and taken the rule of the Seven Kingdoms into his own hand. In 131 AC, as his reign began, he was a boy of ten, tall for his age, it was said, with silver hair so pale that it was almost white, and purple eyes so dark that they were almost black. Even as a lad, Aegon smiled seldom and laughed less, says Mushroom, and though he could be graceful and courtly at need, there was a darkness within him that never went away. The circumstances under which the boy king began his reign were far from auspicious. The river lords who had broken Aegon II's last army at the Battle of the King's Road marched to King's Landing prepared for battle. Instead, Lord Corlys Valerian and Prince Aegon rode forth to meet them under a peace banner. The king is dead. Long live the king, Lord Corlys said, as he yielded up the city to their mercy. Then, as now, the river lords were a fractious, quarrelsome lot. Kermit Tully, Lord of Riverrun, was their liege lord and nominally commander of their host, but it must be remembered that his lordship was but nineteen years of age, and green as summer grass, as the Northmen might say. His brother Oscar, who had slain three men during the muddy mess and been knighted on the battlefield afterward, was still greener, and cursed with a sort of prickly pride so common in second sons. House Tully was unique amongst the great houses of Westeros. Aegon the Conqueror had made them the Lord's Paramount of the Trident, yet in many ways they continued to be overshadowed by many of their own bannermen. The Brackens, the Blackwoods, and the Vances all ruled wider domains and could field much larger armies, as could the upstart Freys of the Twins. The Malisters of Seaguard had a prouder lineage, the Moutons of Maidenpool were far wealthier, and Harrenhal, even cursed and blasted and in ruins, remained a more formidable castle than Riverrun, and ten times the size besides. 
The undistinguished history of House Tully had only been exacerbated by the character of its last two lords, but now the gods had brought a younger generation of Tullys to the fore, a pair of proud young men determined to prove themselves, Lord Kermit as a ruler and Sir Oscar as a warrior. Riding beside them from the banks of the Trident to the gates of King's Landing was an even younger man, Benjicott Blackwood, Lord of Raventree. Bloody Ben, as his men had taken to calling him, was only thirteen, an age at which most high-born boys are still squires, grooming their master's horses and scouring the rust from their mail. Lordship had fallen to him early, when his father, Lord Samuel Blackwood, had been slain by Sir Amos Bracken at the Battle of the Burning Mill. Despite his youth, the boy lord had refused to delegate authority to older men. At the fish feed, he had famously wept at the sight of so many dead, yet he did not flinch from battle afterward, but rather sought it out. His men had helped to drive Criston Cole from Harrenhal by hunting down his foragers. He had commanded the centre at Second Tumbleton, and during the muddy mess he had led the flank attack from the woods that had broken Lord Baratheon's stormlanders and won the day. Clad for court, it was said, Lord Benjicott was very much a boy, tall for his age but slight of build, with a sensitive face and a shy, self-effacing manner. Clad in mail and plate, Bloody Ben was an altogether different man, and one who had seen more of the battlefield at thirteen than most men do in their entire lives. There were, to be sure, other lords and famous knights amongst the host that Corlys Valerian confronted outside the Gate of the Gods that day in 131 A.C., all of them older and some of them wiser than Bloody Ben Blackwood and the brothers Tully, yet somehow the three youths had emerged from the muddy mess as the undoubted leaders. Bound by battle, the three had become so inseparable that their men began referring to them collectively as the lads. Amongst their supporters were two extraordinary women, Alison Blackwood, called Black Alley, a sister to the late Lord Samuel Blackwood, and thus aunt to Bloody Ben, and Sabbatha Frey, the Lady of the Twins, the widow of Lord Forrest Frey and mother of his heir, a sharp-featured, sharp-tongued harridan of House Vipran, who would sooner ride than dance, wore mail instead of silk, and was fond of killing men and kissing women, according to Mushroom. The lads knew Lord Corlys Valerian only by reputation, but that reputation was formidable. Having arrived at King's Landing with the expectation that they would need to besiege the city or take it by storm, they were delighted, if surprised, to have it presented to them as on a gilded platter, and to learn that Aegon II was dead. Though Benjicott Blackwood and his aunt both expressed disquiet about the manner of his death, for poison was regarded as a coward's weapon and lacking in honour. Glad cries rang down the field as word of the king's death spread and one by one the Lord of the Trident and their allies came forward to bend their knees before Prince Aegon and hail him as their king. As the river lords rode through the city, small folk cheered them from rooftops and balconies, and pretty girls scampered forward to shower their saviours with kisses. Like mummers in a farce, says Mushroom, suggesting all this had been devised by Larry Strong. The gold cloaks lined the streets, lowering their spears as the lads rode by. Within the Red Keep, 
The lads found the dead king's body laid out upon a bier beneath the iron throne, with his mother, Queen Alicent, weeping beside it. What remained of Aegon's court had gathered in the hall, amongst them Lord Larry's strong the clubfoot, Grand Maester Orwile, Sir Perkin the Flea, Mushroom, Septon Eustace, Sir Giles Belgrave, and four other king's guard and sundry lesser lords and household knights. Orwile spoke for them, hailing the river lords as deliverers. Elsewhere in the crown lands, and along the narrow sea, the dead king's remaining loyalists were yielding too. The Bravosi landed Lord Leowin Corbray at Duskendale, with half the power that Lady Arryn had sent down from the Vale. The other half disembarked at Maidenpool under his brother Sir Corwin Corbray. Both towns welcomed the Arryn hosts with feasts and flowers. Stokeworth and Rosby fell bloodlessly, hauling down the golden dragon of Aegon II to raise the red dragon of Aegon III. Dragonstone's garrison proved more stubborn, barring their gates and vowing defiance. They held out for three days and two nights. On the third night, the castle's grooms, cooks, and serving men took up arms and rose against the king's men, slaughtering many as they slept and delivering the rest in chains to young Alan Valerian. Septon Eustace tells us that a strange euphoria took hold of King's Landing. Mushroom simply says that half the city was drunk. The corpse of King Aegon II was consigned to the flames, in the hopes that all the ills and hatreds of his reign might be burned away with his remains. Thousands climbed Aegon's high hill to hear Prince Aegon proclaim that peace was at hand. A lavish coronation was planned for the boy to be followed by his wedding to the Princess Jehera. A cloud of ravens rose from the Red Keep, summoning the poisoned king's remaining loyalists in Old Town, the Reach, Casterly Rock, and Storm's End to King's Landing to do homage to their new monarch. Safe conducts were given, full pardons promised. The realm's new rulers found themselves divided on the question of what to do with the dowager Queen Alicent, but elsewise all seemed in accord and good fellowship reigned, for the best part of a fortnight. The False Dawn, Grand Maester Munken names it in his true telling. A heady time, no doubt, but short-lived. For when Lord Cregan Stark arrived before King's Landing with his Northmen, the frolics ended, and the happy plans came crashing down. The Lord of Winterfell was twenty-three, only a few years older than the Lords of Raventree and Riverrun, yet Stark was a man, and they were boys, as all those who saw them together seemed to sense. The lads shrank in his presence, Mushroom says. Whenever the Wolf of the North stalked into a room, Bloody Ben would recall that he was but three and ten, whilst Lord Tully and his brother blustered and stammered and flushed red as their hair. King's Landing had welcomed the River Lords and their men with feasts and flowers and honours. Not so the Northmen. There were more of them for a start, a host twice as large as those the lads had led, and with a fearsome repute. In their mail shirts and shaggy fur cloaks, their features hidden behind thick, tangles of beard, they swaggered through the city like so many armoured bears, says Mushroom. Most of what King's Landing knew of Northmen they had learned from Sir Medric Manderley and his brother Sir Torren, courtly men, well-spoken, handsomely clad, well-disciplined, and godly. The Winterfell men did not even honour the true gods, Septon Eustace notes with horror.
They scorned the seven, ignored the feast days, mocked the holy books, showed no reverence to Septon or Scepter, worshipped trees. Two years passed. Cregan Stark had made a promise to Prince Jacarius. Now he had come to make good his pledge, though Jace and the Queen, his mother, were both dead. The North remembers, Lord Stark declared when Prince Aegon, Lord Corlys, and the lads bid him welcome. You come too late, my lord, the sea snake told him, for the war is done and the king is dead. Septon Eustace, who stood witness to the meeting, tells us that the Lord of Winterfell gazed upon the old Lord of the Tides with eyes as grey and cold as a winter storm, and said, By whose hand and at whose word, I wonder? For the savages had come for blood and battle, as we would all learn shortly, to our sorrow. The good Septon was not wrong. Others had started this war, Lord Cregan was heard to say, but he meant to finish it, to continue south and destroy all that remained of the Greens who had placed Aegon II on the Iron Throne and fought to keep him there. He would reduce Storm's End first, then cross the Reach to take Old Town. Once the High Tower had fallen, he would take his wolves north along the shores of the Sunset Sea to visit Casterly Rock. A bold plan, Grand Maester Orwile said cautiously when he heard it. Mushroom prefers madness, but adds, they called Aegon the Dragon mad when he spoke of conquering all Westeros. When Kermit Tully pointed out that Storm's End, Old Town, and Casterly Rock were as strong as Stark's own Winterfell, if not stronger, and would not fall easily, if at all, and young Ben Blackwood echoed him and said, Half your men will die, Lord Stark. The grey-eyed wolf of Winterfell replied, They died the day we marched, boy. Like the winter wolves before them, most of the men who had marched south with Lord Cregan Stark did not expect to see their homes again. The snows were already deep beyond the neck, the cold winds rising. In keeps and castles and humble villages throughout the north, the great and small alike prayed to their carved wooden god-trees that this winter might be short. Those with fewer mouths to feed fared better in the dark days, so it had long been the custom in the north for old men, younger sons, the unwed, the childless, the homeless, and the hopeless, to leave hearth and home when the first snows fell, so that their kin might live to see another spring. Victory was secondary to the men of these winter armies. They marched for glory, adventure, plunder, and, most of all, a worthy end. Once more it fell to Corlys Valerian, Lord of the Tides, to plead for peace, pardon, and reconciliation. The killing has gone on too long, the old man said. Rhaenyra and Aegon are dead. Let their quarrel die with them. You speak of taking Storm's End, Old Town, and Casterly Rock, my lord, but the men who held those seats were slain in battle, every one. Small boys and suckling babes sit in their places now, no threat to us. Grant them honourable terms and they will bend the knee. But Lord Stark was no more inclined to listen to such talk than Aegon II and Queen Alicent had been. Small boys become large men in time he replied, and a babe sucks down his mother's hate with his mother's milk. Finish these foes now, or those of us not in our graves in twenty years will rue our folly when those babes strap on their father's swords 
and come seeking after vengeance. Lord Valerian would not be moved. King Aegon said the same and died for it. Had he heeded our counsel and offered peace and pardon to his foes, he might be sitting with us here today. Is that why you poisoned him, my lord? asked the lord of Winterfell. Though Cregan Stark had no personal history with the sea snake for good or ill, he knew that Lord Corlys had served Rhaenyra as queen's hand, that she had imprisoned him on suspicion of treason, that he had been freed by Aegon II and accepted a seat upon his council, only, it would seem, to help bring about his death by poison. Small wonder you are called the Sea Snake, Lord Stark went on. You may slither this way and that way, but, oh, your fangs are venomous. Aegon was an oath-breaker, a kinslayer, and a usurper, yet still a king. When he would not heed your craven's counsel, you removed him as a craven would, dishonorably, with poison. And now you shall answer for it. Then Stark's men burst into the council chambers, disarmed the guardsmen at the door, pulled the aged sea snake from his chair, and dragged him to the dungeon. There he would soon be joined by Larry Strong, the clubfoot, Grand Maester Orwile, Sir Perkin the Flea, and Septon Eustace, along with half a hundred others, both high-born and low, that Stark found cause to mistrust. I was myself tempted to return to my cask of flour, Mushroom says, but thankfully I proved too small for the wolf to notice. Not even the lads were spared Lord Cregan's wrath, though they were ostensibly his allies. Are you babes in swaddling clothes to be cozened by flowers and feasts and soft words? Stark berated them. Who told you the war was done? The clubfoot? The snake? Why, because they wish it done? Because you won your little victory in the mud? Wars end when the defeated bend the knee and not before. Has Old Town yielded? Has Casterly Rock returned the crown's gold? You say you mean to marry the prince to the king's daughter, yet she remains at storm's end, beyond your reach. So long as she remains free and unwed, what is to stop Baratheon's widow from crowning the girl queen as Aegon's heir? When Lord Tully protested that the Stormlanders were beaten and did not have the strength to field another army, Lord Cregan reminded them of the three envoys that Aegon II had sent across the narrow sea, any of whom might return upon the morrow with thousands of sellswords. Queen Rhaenyra had believed herself victorious after taking King's Landing, the Northman said, and Aegon II thought that he had ended the war by feeding his sister to a dragon. Yet Queen's men had remained, even after the Queen herself was dead, and Aegon is reduced to bones and ashes. The lads found themselves overmatched. Cowed, they gave way, and agreed to join their own power to Lord Stark's when he marched against Storm's End. Munken says they did so willingly, convinced that the Wolf Lord had the right of it. Flush with victory, they wanted more, he writes in the true telling. They hungered for more glory, for the fame that young men dream of that can only be won in battle. Mushroom takes a more cynical view, and suggests that the young lordlings were simply terrified of Cregan's start. The result was the same. The city was his to do with as he wished, Septon Eustace says. The Northmen had taken it without drawing a sword or loosing an arrow. Be they king's men or queen's men, stormlanders or seahorses, river lords or gutter knights, high-born or low, common soldiers deferred to him as if they had been born to his service. 
For six days, King's Landing trembled on the edge of a sword. In the pot shops and wine sinks of Flea Bottom, men placed wagers on how long the clubfoot, the sea snake, the flea, and the dowager queen would keep their heads. Rumors swept the city one after the other. Some said that Lord Stark planned to take Prince Aegon back to Winterfell and wed him to one of his own daughters. An obvious falsehood, as Craig and Stark had no true-born daughters at this time. Others that Stark meant to put the boy to death so that he might marry Princess Jehera and claim the Iron Throne himself. The Northmen would burn the city's sets and force King's Landing to return to the worship of the old gods, Septons declared. Others whispered that the Lord of Winterfell had a wildling wife, that he threw his enemies into a pit of wolves to watch them be devoured. The mood of euphoria had vanished. Once more fear ruled the city's streets. A man who claimed to be the shepherd reborn rose up from the gutters, calling down destruction on the godless northerners. Though he looked nothing like the first shepherd, he had two hands for a start. Hundreds flocked to hear him speak. A brothel on the street of silk burned down when a quarrel over a certain whore between one of Lord Tully's men and one of Lord Stark's set off a bloody melee between their friends and brothers-in-arms. Even the highborn were not safe in the more unsavory parts of the city. The younger son of Lord Hornwood, a bannerman to Lord Stark, vanished with two companions whilst roistering in Flea Bottom. They were never found and may have ended in a bowl of brown, if mushroom can be believed. Soon thereafter, word reached the city that Leowyn Corbray had left Maidenpool and was making for King's Landing, accompanied by Lord Mouton, Lord Brune, and Sir Renifer Crabbe. Sir Corwin Corbray departed Duskendale at the same time to join his brother on the march. With him rode Clement Keltigar, old Lord Bartimus's son and heir, and Lady Staunton, the widow of Rook's Rest. On Dragonstone, young Alan Valerian was demanding the release of Lord Corlys, this much was true, and threatening to descend upon King's Landing with his ships if the old man was harmed. Half true. Other rumours claimed the Lannisters were on the march, the High Towers were on the march, Sir Marston Waters had landed with ten thousand sellswords from Lys and Old Volantis, all without truth. And the Maiden of the Vale had set sail from Gulltown with Lady Raina Targaryen and her dragon. True. As armies marched and swords were sharpened, Lord Cregan Stark sat within the Red Keep, conducting his inquiries into the murder of King Aegon II, even as he planned his campaign against the dead king's remaining supporters. Prince Aegon, meanwhile, found himself confined to Magor's Holdfast, with no companions save the boy Gaemon Palehair. When the prince demanded to know why he was not free to come and go, Stark replied that it was for his own safety. This city is a nest of vipers, Lord Cregan told him. There are liars, turncloaks, and poisoners in this court who would murder you as quick as they did your uncle to secure their own power. When Aegon protested that Lord Corlys, Lord Larys, and Sir Perkin were friends, the Lord of Winterfell replied that false friends were more dangerous to a king than any foe, that the snake, the clubfoot, and the flea had saved him only to make use of him, so they might rule Westeros in his name. With the infallibility of hindsight, we now look back through the centuries and say, the dance was done. But this seemed less certain to those who lived through its dark and dangerous aftermath. With Septon Eustace and Grand Maester Orwell languishing in dungeons, 
where Orwell had begun writing his Confessions, the text that would provide Munken with the foundation on which he would build his monumental True Telling, only Mushroom remains to take us beyond the court chronicles and royal edicts. The great lords would have given us another two years of war, the fool declares in his testimony. It was the women who made the peace, Black Alley, the Maiden of the Vale, the Three Widows, the Dragon Twins. T'was them who brought the bloodshed to an end, and not with swords or poison, but with ravens, words, and kisses. The seeds cast into the wind by Lord Corlys Valerian during the false dawn had taken root and borne sweet fruit. One by one, the ravens returned, bearing answers to the old man's peace offers. Casterly Rock was the first to respond. Lord Jason Lannister had left six children when he died in battle, five daughters and one son, Lorian, a boy of four. Rule in the West had therefore passed to his widow, Lady Joanna, and her father, Roland Westerling, Lord of the Crag. With the Red Kraken's longships still menacing their coasts, the Lannisters were more concerned with defending Case and retaking Fair Isle than with renewing the struggle for the Iron Throne. Lady Joanna agreed to all the Sea Snake's terms, promising to come herself to King's Landing to do obeisance to the new king on his coronation, and deliver two daughters to the Red Keep, to serve as companions to the new queen, and as hostages to ensure her future loyalty. She agreed as well to restore that portion of the royal treasury that Tyland Lannister had sent west for safekeeping, providing that Sir Tyland himself was granted pardon. In return, she asked only that the Iron Throne command Lord Greyjoy to crawl back to his islands, restore Fair Isle to its rightful lords, and free all the women he has carried off, or at the least all those of noble birth. Many of the men who had survived the battle on the King's Road had made their way back to Storm's End afterward. Hungry, weary, wounded, they drifted home alone or in small groups, and Lord Boros Baratheon's widow, the Lady Elenda, had only to look at them to realize they had lost their taste for battle. Nor did she wish to put her newborn son Oliver at risk, for that little lord at her breast was the future of House Baratheon. Though it is said that her eldest daughter, the Lady Cassandra, wept bitter tears when she learned she was not to be a queen, Lady Elenda soon agreed to terms. Still weak from her labor, she could not come to the city herself, for the coronation, she wrote, but she would send her own lord father to do homage in her stead, and three of her daughters to serve as hostages. They would be accompanied by Sir Willis Fell, together with his precious charge, the eight-year-old Princess Jehera, the last living child of King Aegon II, and the new king's bride-to-be. Last to respond was Old Town, the wealthiest of the great houses that had rallied King Aegon II, the High Towers remained in some ways the most dangerous, for they were capable of raising large new armies quickly from the streets of Old Town, and with their own warships and those of their close kin, the Red Wines of the Arbor, they could float a significant fleet as well. Moreover, one quarter of the Crown's gold still rested in deep vaults beneath the High Tower, a gold that could easily have been used to buy new alliances and hire sellsword companies. Old Town had the power to renew the war. All that was lacking was the will. Lord Ormond had only recently taken a second wife when the dance began, his first having died some years before in childbed. Upon his death at Tumbleton, his lands and title passed to his eldest son, Lionel, 
a youth of fifteen on the cusp of manhood. The second son, Martin, was a squire to Lord Redwine on the arbor. The third was fostering at Highgarden as a companion to Lord Tyrell and cup-bearer to his lady mother. All three were children of Lord Ormond's first marriage. When Lord Valerian's terms were put to Lionel Hightower, it is said, the young lord ripped the parchment from his maester's hand and tore it into shreds, swearing to write his reply in the sea snake's blood. His lord father's young widow had other notions, however. Lady Samantha was the daughter of Lord Donald Tarley of Horn Hill and Lady Jane Rowan of Goldengrove, both houses that had taken up arms for the queen during the dance. Fierce and fiery and beautiful, this strong-willed girl had no intention of giving up her place as the lady of Old Town and mistress of the High Tower. Lionel was but two years her junior, and, Mushroom says, had been infatuated with her since first she came to Old Town to wed his father. Whereas previously she had fended off the boy's halting advances, now Lady Sam, as she would be known for many a year, yielded to them, allowing him to seduce her, and afterward promising to marry him but only if he would make peace, for I would surely die of grief should I lose another husband. Faced with a choice between a dead father cold in the ground and a living woman warm and willing in his arms, the boy showed surprising sense for one so high-born and shows love over honour, says Mushroom. Lionel Hightower capitulated, agreeing to all the terms put forth by Lord Corliss, including the return of the crown's gold to the fury of his cousin Sir Miles Hightower, who had stolen a good part of that gold, though that tale need not concern us here. A great scandal ensued when the young lord then announced his intention to marry his father's widow, and the reigning High Septon ultimately forbade the marriage as a form of incest. But even that could not keep these young lovers apart. Thereafter, refusing to wed, the lord of the Hightower and defender of Old Town kept the Lady Sam by his side as his paramour, for the next thirteen years, fathering six children on her, and finally taking her as his wife when a new High Septon came to power in the Starry Sept and reversed the ruling of his predecessor. This is the tale as Mushroom tells it in any case. Munkin's true telling ascribes a different cause to Lord Lionel's change of heart, however. It must be recalled that the High Towers, as rich and powerful as they were, were bannermen sworn to House Tyrell of Highgarden, where his lordship's brother Garmond was a page. The Tyrells had taken no part in the dance, ruled as they were by a little lord in swaddling clothes, but now at last they bestirred themselves, forbidding Lord Lionel to raise a host or go to war without their leave. Should he disobey, his brother would pay for that defiance with his life. For every ward is also a hostage, as a wise man once said. Also Grand Maester Munker avers. Let us leave the High Tower now and return once more to King's Landing, where Lord Cregan Stark found all his plans for war undone by the three widows. Other voices were making themselves heard as well, gentler voices that echoed softly through the halls of the Red Keep, says Mushroom. The Maiden of the Vale had arrived from Galtown, bringing her own ward, the Lady Raina Targaryen, with a dragon on her shoulder. The small folk of King's Landing, who not a year before had slaughtered every dragon in the city, now became rapturous at the sight of one. Lady Rayner and her twin sister Baylor became the darlings of the city overnight. Lord Stark could not confine them to the castle, as he had Prince Aegon, and he soon learned that he could not control them either, 
When they demanded to be allowed to see our beloved brother, Lady Arryn gave them her support, and the wolf of Winterfell yielded. Somewhat grudgingly, says Mushroom. The meeting did not go as well as the twins might have hoped, however. The prince paled at the sight of Lady Rayner's dragon, mourning, and commanded the Northmen guarding him to get that wretched creature out of my sight. The false dawn had come and gone, and now the hour of the wolf, as Grand Maester Munker names it, was waning too. The situation and the city were both slipping from the hands of Cregan Stark. When Lord Leowyn Corbray and his brother arrived in King's Landing and joined the ruling council, adding their voices to those of Lady Arryn and the lads, the Wolf of Winterfell oft found himself at odds with all of them. Here and there, throughout the realm, a few stubborn loyalists still flew Aegon II's golden dragon, but they were of little significance. The dance was done, the others all agreed. It was time to make the peace and set the realm to rights. On one point, Lord Cregan remained adamant, however. The king's killers must not go unpunished. Unworthy as King Aegon II might have been, his murder was high treason, and those responsible must answer for it. So fierce was his demeanour, so unyielding that the others gave way before him. Let it be on your head, Stark, Kermit Tully said. I want no part of this, but I will not have it said that Riverrun stood in the way of justice. No lord had the right to put another lord to death, so it was first necessary for Prince Aegon to make Lord Stark the king's hand, with full authority to act in his name. This was done. Lord Cregan did all the rest, whilst the others stood aside. He did not presume to sit the Iron Throne, but on a simple wooden bench beneath it. One by one, the men suspected of having played a part in the poisoning of King Aegon II were brought before him. Septon Eustace was the first brought up, and the first released. There was no proof against him. Grand Maester Orwell was less fortunate, for he had confessed under torture to having given the poison to the clubfoot. My lord, I did not know what it was for, Orwell protested. Nor did you ask, Lord Stark replied. You did not wish to know. The Grand Maester was judged to be complicit and sentenced to death. Sir Giles Belgrave was also put down for death. If he had not put the poison in the king's wine himself, he had allowed it to happen through carelessness or willful blindness. No knight of the king's guard should outlive his king when that king dies by violence, Stark declared. Three of Belgrave's sworn brothers had been present at King Aegon's death and were similarly condemned, though their complicity in the plot could not be proved. The three Kingsguard who were not in the city were judged innocent. Twenty-two lesser personages were also found to have played some part in King Aegon's murder. His Grace's litter-bearers were amongst them, along with the King's Herald, the Keeper of the Royal Wine Cellars, and the serving man whose task it was to make certain the King's flagon was always full. All were marked down for death. So too were the men who had put the King's food-taster Omit to the sword. Mushroom himself gave evidence against them, together with those responsible for cutting down Tom Tangletongue and drowning his father in ale. Most of these were gutter knights, sellswords, masterless men-at-arms, and scum of the streets who had been granted their dubious knighthood by Sir Perkin the Flea during the turmoil. To a man, each of them insisted that they had been acting on Sir Perkin's orders. 
Of the flea's own guilt, there could be no doubt. Once a turn cloak, ever a turn cloak, Lord Cregan said. You rose up in rebellion against your lawful queen and helped drive her from this city to her death, raised up your own squire in her place, then abandoned him to save your worthless hide. The realm will be a better place without you. When Sir Perkin protested that he had been pardoned for those crimes, Lord Stark replied, Not by me. The men who had seized the Queen Dowager upon the Serpentine Steps had worn the seahorse badge of House Valerian, whilst those who had freed Lady Bela Targaryen from her imprisonment had been in service to Lord Laris Strong. Queen Alicent's captors had slain her guards and were thus condemned to death, but an impassioned plea from Lady Bela herself spared her rescuers from a similar fate, though they too had blooded their swords by cutting down the king's men posted at her door. Not even the tears of a dragon could melt the frozen heart of Cregan Stark, men said rightly, Mushroom tells us. But when Lady Bela brandished a sword and declared that she would cut off the hand of any man who sought to harm the men who had saved her, the Wolf of Winterfell smiled for all to see, and allowed that if her ladyship was so fond of these dogs, he would permit her to keep them. The last to face the judgment of the wolf, as Monken dubs these proceedings in the true telling, were the two great lords at the heart of the conspiracy, Laris Strong, the clubfoot, lord of Harrenhal, and Corlys Valerian, the sea-snake, master of Driftmark and lord of the tides. Lord Valerian did not attempt to deny his guilt. What I did, I did for the good of the realm, the old man said. I would do the same again. The madness had to end. Lord Strong proved less forthcoming. Grand Maester Orwell had testified that he gave the poison to his lordship, and Sir Perkin the Flea swore that he had been the clubfoot's man, acting entirely on his orders. But Lord Laris would neither confirm nor deny the accusations. When Lord Stark asked if he had anything to say in his own defence, he said only, When was a wolf ever moved by words? And thus Lord Cregan Stark, hand of the uncrowned king, declared the lords Valerian and Strong to be guilty of murder, regicide, and high treason, and decreed that they must pay for their crimes with their lives. Larius Strong had always been a man who went his own way, kept his own counsel, and changed allegiances as other men changed cloaks. Once condemned, he stood friendless. Not a voice was raised in his defence. It was quite otherwise with Corlys Valerian, however. The old sea-snake had many friends and admirers. Even men who had fought against him during the dance spoke up for him now. Some out of affection for the old man, no doubt. Others from concern for what his young heir, Alan, might do should his beloved grandsire, or sire, be put to death. When Lord Stark proved unyielding, some of them sought to circumvent him by appealing to the king to be Prince Aegon himself. Foremost amongst them were his half-sisters, Bela and Rayna, who reminded the prince that he would have lost an ear, and perhaps more if Lord Corlys had not acted as he did. Words are wind, says the testimony of Mushroom, but a strong wind can topple mighty oaks, and the whispering of pretty girls can change the destiny of kingdoms. Aegon not only agreed to spare the sea-snake, but went so far as to restore him to his offices and honours, including a place on the small council. The prince was but ten years of age, however, and not yet a king, uncrowned and not yet anointed as king. 
His grace's decrees carried no weight in law. Even after his coronation, he would remain subject to a regent or regency council until his sixteenth name day. Therefore, Lord Stark would have been well within his rights to pay no heed to the prince's commands and proceed with the execution of Corlys Valerian. He chose not to do so, a decision that has intrigued scholars ever since. Septon Eustace suggests that the mother moved him to mercy that night, though Lord Cregan did not worship the seven. Eustace further suggests that the Northman was loath to provoke Alan Valerian, fearing his strength at sea. But this seems singularly at odds with all we know of Stark's character. A new war would not have dismayed him. Indeed, at times he seemed to seek it. It is Mushroom who provides the most lucid explanation for this surprising leniency in the Wolf of Winterfell. It was not the prince who swayed him, the fool claims, nor the looming threat of the Valerian fleets, nor even the entreaties of the twins, but rather a bargain struck with Lady Alison of House Blackwood. A lean, tall creature was this wench, says the dwarf, thin as a whip and flat-chested as a boy, but long of leg and strong of arm, with a mane of thick black curls that tumbled down past her waist when loosed. Huntress, horse-breaker and archer without peer, Black Alley had little of a woman's softness about her. Many thought her to be of that same ilk as Sabbath of Frey, for they were oft in one another's company, and had been known to share a tent whilst on the march. Yet in King's Landing, whilst accompanying her young nephew Benjicott at court and council, she had met Cregan Stark and conceived a liking for the stern Northman. And Lord Cregan, a widower these past three years, had responded in kind. Though Black Alley was no man's queen of love and beauty, her fearlessness, stubborn strength, and bawdy tongue struck a chord for the Lord of Winterfell, who soon began to seek out her company in hall and yard. She smells of wood smoke, not of flowers, Stark told Lord Kerwin, said to be his closest friend. And so when Lady Alison came to ask that he let the prince's edict stand, he listened. Why would I do that? Lord Stark purportedly asked when she had made her plea. For the realm, she answered. It is better for the realm that traitors die, he said. For the honor of our prince, said she. The prince is a child. He ought not have meddled in this. It is Valerian who brought dishonor on him, for now it will be said until the end of days that he came to his throne by murder. For the sake of peace, said Lady Alison for all those who will surely die should Alan Valerian seek vengeance. There are worse ways to die. Winter has come, my lady. For me, then, said Black Alley, grant me this boon, and I shall never ask another. Do this, and I shall know that you are as wise as you are strong, as kind as you are fierce. Give me this, and I shall give you whatever you may choose to ask of me. A mushroom, says Lord Cregan, scowled at that. What if I ask you for your maidenhead, my lady? I cannot give you what I do not have, my lord, she answered. I lost my maidenhead in the saddle when I was three and ten. Some would say that you squandered on a horse, a gift that by rights should have belonged to your future husband. Some are fools, Black Alley answered. And she was a good horse, better than most husbands I have seen. Her answer pleased Lord Cregan, who laughed aloud and said, 
I shall try to remember that, my lady. Aye, I'll grant your boon. And in return? she asked. All I ask is all of you forever, the Lord of Winterfell said solemnly. I claim your hand in marriage. A hand for a head, said Black Alley, grinning. For Mushroom tells us this was her intent all along. Done. And it was. The morning of the executions dawned grey and wet. All those condemned to die were brought up from the dungeons in chains to the Red Keep's outer ward. There they were forced to their knees whilst Prince Aegon and his court looked on. As Septon Eustace led the doomed men in prayer, beseeching the mother to have mercy on their souls, rain began to fall. It rained so hard, and Eustace droned on so long, that we began to fear the prisoners might drown before their heads could be cut off, says Mushroom. At last the prayer concluded, and Lord Cregan Stark unsheathed ice, the Valyrian greatsword that was the pride of his house, for the savage custom of the North decreed that the man who passed the sentence must also wield the sword, that their blood might be upon his hands alone. Be he a high lord or common headsman, seldom had any man faced so many executions as Cregan Stark did that morning in the rain. Yet it came undone in a trice. The condemned had drawn lots to see who would be the first to die, and the choice had fallen on Sir Perkin the Flea. When Lord Cregan asked that cunning rogue if he had any final words, Sir Perkin declared that he wished to take the black. A Southron lord might or might not have honoured his request, but the Starks are of the North, where the needs of the Night's Watch are held in high regard. And when Lord Cregan bade his men haul the flea onto his feet, the other prisoners saw the road to deliverance, and echoed his request. All of them began to shout at once, Mushroom says, like a chorus of drunks bellowing out the words of a song they half remember. Gutter knights and men-at-arms, litter-bearers, serving men, heralds, the keeper of the wine-cellars, three white swords of the king's guard, every man of them, suddenly evinced a deep desire to defend the wall. Even Grand Maester Orwile joined the desperate chorus. He too was spared, for the Night's Watch needs men of the quill as well as men of the sword. Only two men died that day. One was Sir Giles Belgrave, of the Kingsguard. Unlike his sworn brothers, Sir Giles refused the chance to exchange his white cloak for black. You were not wrong, Lord Stark, he said when his turn came. A knight of the Kingsguard should not outlive his king. Lord Cregan took his head off with a single, swift swing of ice. Next, and last, to die, was Lord Larris Strong. When asked if he wished to take the black, he said, No, my lord, I'll be going to a warmer hell if it please you, but I do have one last request. When I am dead, hack off my club foot with that great sword of yours. I have dragged it with me all through life. Let me be free of it in death, at least. This boon Lord Stark granted him. Thus perished the last strong, and a proud and ancient house came to its end. Lord Larris's remains were given over to the silent sisters. Years later, his bones would find their final resting place at Harrenhal, save for his club foot. Lord Stark decreed that it should be buried separately in a pauper's field, but before that could be done, it disappeared. 
A mushroom tells us it was stolen and sold to some sorcerer, who used it in the casting of his spells. The selfsame tale is told of the foot torn off Prince Joffrey's leg in Flea Bottom, which makes the veracity of both suspect, unless we are meant to believe that all feet are possessed of malign powers. The heads of Lord Larry's Strong and Sir Giles Belgrave were mounted on either side of the Red Keep's gates. The other condemned were returned to their cells to languish, until arrangements could be made to send them to the wall. The final line in the history of the woeful reign of King Aegon II Targaryen had been written. Cregan Stark's brief service as the hand of the uncrowned king ended the next day, when he returned his chain of office to Prince Aegon. He might easily have remained king's hand for years, or even claimed the regency until young Aegon came of age, but the South held no interest for him. The snows are falling in the north, he announced, and my place is at Winterfell. Under the Regents, the Hooded Hand Cregan Stark had stepped down as Hand of the King and announced his intention to return to Winterfell. But before he could take his leave of the South, he faced a thorny problem. Lord Stark had marched south with a great host, made up in large part of men unwanted and unneeded in the North, whose return would bring great hardship and mayhaps even death for the loved ones they had left behind. Legend, and Mushroom, tells us that it was Lady Alisan who suggested an answer. The lands along the Trident were full of widows, she reminded Lord Stark. Women, many burdened with young children, who had sent their husbands off to fight with one lord or another, only for them to fall in battle. With winter at hand, strong backs and willing hands would be welcome in many a hearth and home. In the end, more than a thousand Northmen accompanied Black Alley and her nephew, Lord Benjicott, when they returned to the Riverlands after the royal wedding. A wolf for every widow, Mushroom japed. He will warm her bed in winter and gnaw her bones come spring. Yet hundreds of marriages were made at the so-called Widow fairs held at Raventree, Riverrun, Stony Sept, the Twins, and Fair Market. Those Northmen who did not wish to marry instead swore their swords to lords both great and small as guards and men-at-arms. A few, sad to say, did turn to outlawry and met evil ends, but for the most part Lady Alisan's matchmaking was a great success. The resettled Northmen not only strengthened the river lords who welcomed them, particularly House Tully and House Blackwood, but also helped revive and spread the worship of the old gods south of the Neck. Other Northerners chose to seek new lives and fortunes across the narrow sea. A few days after Lord Stark stepped down as the king's hand, Sir Marston Waters returned alone from Lease, whence he had been sent to hire sellswords. He gladly accepted a pardon for his past crimes and reported that the triarchy had collapsed. On the point of war, the three daughters were hiring free companies as fast as they could form, at wages he could not hope to match. Many of Lord Cregan's Northmen saw this as an opportunity. Why return to a land gripped by winter to freeze or starve when there was gold to be had across the narrow sea? Not one, but two free companies were berthed as a result. The Wolf Pack, commanded by Hallis Hornwood, called Mad Hal, and Timothy Snow, the bastard of Flint's finger, 
was made up entirely of Northmen, whilst the Stormbreakers, financed and led by Sir Oscar Tully, included men from every part of Westeros. Even as these adventurers prepared to take their leave of King's Landing, others were arriving from every point of the compass for Prince Aegon's coronation and the royal wedding. From the west came Lady Joanna Lannister and her father, Roland Westerling, Lord of the Crag. From the south, two score high towers from Old Town, led by Lord Lionel and the redoubtable Lady Samantha, his father's widow. Though forbidden to wed, their passion for one another had become common knowledge by this time, and so great a scandal that the High Septon refused to travel with them, arriving three days later in the company of the Lords Redwine, Costain, and Beesbury. Lady Elenda, the widow of Lord Boros, remained at Storm's End with her infant son, but sent her daughters Cassandra, Ellen, and Floris to represent House Baratheon. Maris, the fourth daughter, had joined the Silent Sisters, Septon Eustace informs us. In Mushroom's account, this was done after her lady mother had her tongue removed, but that grisly detail can be safely discounted. The persistent belief that the Silent Sisters are tongueless is no more than a myth. It is piety that keeps the sisters silent, not red-hot pincers. Lady Baratheon's father, Royce Caron, Lord of Nightsong and Marshal of the Marches, escorted the girls to the city and would remain with them as their guardian. Alan Valerian came ashore as well, and the Manderley brothers returned once more from White Harbor with a hundred knights in blue-green cloaks. Even from across the narrow sea they came, from Bravos and Pentos, all three of the daughters, old Volantis. From the Summer Isles appeared three tall black princes in feathered cloaks, whose splendor was a wonder to behold. Every inn and stable in King's Landing was soon full, whilst outside the walls a city of tents and pavilions arose for those unable to find accommodations. A great deal of drinking and fornication took place, claims Mushroom. A great deal of prayer and fasting and good works, reports Septon Eustace. The tavern-keepers of the city waxed fat and happy for a time, as did the whores of Fleabottom and their sisters in the fine houses along the street of silk, though the common people complained about the noise and stink. A desperate, fragile air of forced fellowship hung over King's Landing, in the days leading up to the wedding, for many of those crowding cheek by jowl into the city's wine sinks and pot shops had stood upon opposite sides of battlefields a year ago. If only blood can wash out blood, King's Landing was full of the unwashed, says Mushroom. Yet there was less fighting in the streets than most expected, with only three men killed. Mayhaps the lords of the realm had finally grown weary of war. With the dragon pit still largely in ruins, the wedding of Prince Aegon and Prince Jehera was celebrated out of doors at the top of Visenya's Hill, where towering grandstands were erected so the men and women of the nobility might sit in comfort and enjoy an unobstructed view. The day was cold, but sunny, Septon Eustace records. It was the seventh day of the seventh moon of the 131st year after Aegon's conquest, a most auspicious date. The High Septon of Old Town performed the rites himself, and a deafening roar went up from the small folk when His High Holiness declared the prince and princess one. Tens of thousands packed the streets, cheering Aegon and Jehera as they were carried in an open litter up to the Red Keep, where the prince was crowned with a circlet of yellow gold, simple and unadorned, and proclaimed 
Aegon of House Targaryen, the third of his name, king of the Andals, the Roina, and the first men, and lord of the seven kingdoms. Aegon himself placed the crown upon the head of his child bride. Though a solemn boy, the new king was undeniably handsome, lean of face and form, with silver-white hair and purple eyes, whilst the queen was a beautiful child. Their wedding was as lavish a spectacle as the Seven Kingdoms had seen since the coronation of Aegon II in the Dragon Pit. All that was lacking were dragons. There would be no triumphal flight around the city walls for this king, no majestic descent upon the castle.